0: at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates, comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Today, on a special Snap Judgment, we're going to shake it up. In collaboration with the New York Times, we pursue a family mystery, a mystery that began decades ago, 1962, in a small suburb outside of Chicago, Illinois. But we begin a generation later, when Amy Sandberg was quite literally cleaning out her mother's closet. Snap Judgment. Um, As we got to kind of
1: Towards the end of the closet, up to the top shelves, I reached around to feel for anything to see if there was anything we had missed, and I found a a plastic bag and I pulled it down and there inside the bag was a very small, white, what appeared to be baptismal dress. I knew right away it wasn't mine because I I knew I hadn't been baptized. My brothers had been baptized, but I hadn't been baptized. And I also could see that it wouldn't have fit me because I was 12 pounds at birth and this dress was pretty tiny. I held up the dress and show, to show my aunt who was standing there with me and I said, Do you know anything about this? Who's, whose dress is this? And she looked at it and she goes, It's Rebecca's.
2: Did you know who Rebecca was?
1: So when I was a kid, Nine or ten years old, one of my brothers let it slip that he had had a sister before me. So I ran into the house and I found my mom. She was sitting at the kitchen table, and I said, "Is it true? Is it true that you had a a girl before me?" I could see that she was kind of surprised that I asked the question, and took her a minute to collect herself. She said, "Listen carefully." because I'm only going to tell you this story once. Your dad and I couldn't have children and that we had adopted Stephen and Bobby and we very much wanted a girl so we decided to adopt a girl next. When the baby was given to us as as an infant, she was ruddy. And I remember that word very well because I remember looking looking up the definition, definition of ruddy later because I didn't know what it meant, she decided to take the baby to our pediatrician. And uh, when she brought the baby to Dr. Kamen, he thought that the baby was black.
3: This is Leonard Sandberg. The lawyer and a nurse came with the baby To the house to deliver the uh, baby to us it was really not a big problem for us we had two preceding kids who were adopted and everything went very smooth and in this case we assumed that everything would go uh, smooth until we looked at the baby we're we're going fine
1: did you specifically ask for uh, to adopt a white baby no
3: never occurred to me.
1: Well, why, why wouldn't it occur to you?
3: Because I assumed it would be, the baby would be white.
1: And when did you realize that she was black?
3: Immediately, when we looked at her.
1: What did you see?
3: A, bl- a black baby.
1: And did you ask about that when they dropped the baby off?
3: Well, we were amazed and surprised i i i I was absolutely dumbfounded uh bo- both of every uh, my marge my wife and I both were dumbfounded when we looked at the baby obviously that was a big deal
1: why did why did the baby being black concern you
3: in our situation uh having a a uh, 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 negro baby. Would be uh, very difficult, uh, to say the least. Uh, we lived in a, a completely lily-white area during the time that this happened. It wouldn't have been a good idea.
1: Can you imagine what it would have been like for this baby to have grown up in all-white Deerfield?
3: It would have been very difficult. Not not impossible. We would have uh, coped. She would have been the only uh, African-American in the community. Uh, growing up, it might have been very difficult for her. And the boys? And, and the whole family. It, would, it could have been a, 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 a mess.
1: My mom very much wanted to keep Rebecca. That She told me that she loved her and had bonded with her and did not want to um, let her go. And my dad, um, he wanted to give Rebecca back. He wanted to give Rebecca up. My dad eventually, um, won the argument and that's when they decided to return Rebecca. So what my mom told me was that social workers came to the house and they picked up Rebecca, and um, I remember my mom crying when she got to this part of the story and having difficulty finishing the story.
2: Is it your understanding, am I getting this right, that it left a kind of a sadness or a darkness in your mom?
1: absolutely. I feel like there was, al- there was always this sort of hovering sadness. Even though she put on a good face, it seemed like she felt like a sad person most of the time. So I've known you for 55 years, and um, the first word to describe you wouldn't be sentimental. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, did you experience any heartbreak over the baby being taken away?
3: It was definitely moving, and I felt really, really bad. We then made uh, arrangements or or set out right away to uh, get another baby. (laughs) Which was you.
1: (laughs) I know this is speculative, but if it had been today, do you think you would have been okay with adopting a black baby?
3: Of course. No question whatsoever. I have no, no, no qualm about it. What's changed? Oh, the times have changed.
2: Um, can you tell me what Deerfield was like at this time?
1: It was small. When I was a little girl, there was maybe 12,000 residents. It was an all-white community, and it was very racially tense. There had been this housing controversy in
2: 19 A few years before Baby Rebecca came to the Sandbergs, the town had been rocked by a pretty ugly racial controversy. A developer had made plans to build an integrated housing complex, and the majority of townspeople rallied against it and got it shut down. There was a jeering town meeting. The whole thing made national headlines. There were a few people in Deerfield who stood up in favor of the integrated housing including Amy's parents and a local pastor. They very much saw themselves as progressives. And these people were harassed. A cross was burned on someone's lawn. The pastor, Paul Bergren, was so upset about the town's racist response that he actually made an announcement. He said he was going to adopt a black baby. And it did not go over well. This is his daughter, Deborah. She was a student at Deerfield High at the time.
4: I actually am looking right now at um, an article from 1960, and it says, White Pastor in Deerfield Asked to Adopt Negro Child. And I remember specifically that I came into the lunchroom, and as I went to sit down, these other girls said that I couldn't sit there because my dad was a commie and uh, an N-lover. Another article that I've come across has the headline warned on adopting Negro minister threatened. They got a bomb threat. I know my mother then became skittish about really pursuing this adoption of a, of a black child because what it could mean for the entire family and was it was it best for that adoptive child. So I think my mother was the one that finally just said we need to let this go.
2: You had brothers who were little boys when the baby was brought home, right?
4: Right.
1: So they would have been about, Bobby would have been five at the time, and Steve would have been eight at the time Rebecca was brought home.
5: Uh, My name is Steven Sandberg, and uh, I'm about to tell a story about a sister I had that I don't don't have anymore. Her name was Becky, and, um, and I don't know too much about what's happened to her over the years. But what I know about her was, was wonderful, but very short-lived. I can could, I could remember my dad sitting in a chair, TV chair, and I could still remember my dad getting in that chair and holding on to Becky and curled up in the chair and falling asleep in front of the TV with her. I remember my parents every night kept the windows and the, the blinds shut most of the time it's like my parents didn't want anybody to know we were home. and we, I mean, I, I knew that there was trouble in the town, but I didn't understand then how it related to my sister in our family. And I just, to this day, it, it just feels like it, it just wasn't right. It wasn't normal. It shouldn't have happened. And they took my sister. It was wrong. It was all of a sudden, one day, Several people showed up, and uh, my mom had her wrapped in blankets and everything else, and, and would, would let her go. They'd basically cry her out of my mom's hands, and they just they didn't hardly say anything. They just walked out, and I didn't understand at all what was going on, and my mom just told me that Becky's gone, and she's not gonna come back, and that was it. It was very, very cold. After, after they left, I sat on the step outside, it seemed like for hours, with my mom, I'm sorry, holding her hand, because she was so upset, and all she would say is, they took my baby, they took my baby, that's all she would say, I kept saying, I'm sorry, Mom, I didn't know what to do.
2: Your dad seems to say it was his choice to return Rebecca, but Steve is talking as though some outside force came and took Rebecca.
1: I think that Steve's 8-year-old mind couldn't understand what the adults were thinking. I think he, he saw his baby sister being forcibly taken out of my mom's hands and people leaving with her.
5: When we lost Rebecca, it changed my parents. My parents traveled all over the world and were very close and loved each other very much. And when we lost Becky, I believe that it ultimately led to their divorce. We we had conversations um, even before, just shortly before she died Um, and she still on her deathbed, couldn't believe that something like that happened to her because she was such a strong believer in treating everybody the same and equality that, that she was it was almost like 50 years of shock that this could happen to her and actually did happen to her, and it still affected her 50 years later. Dad and I have talked about it. And he he seems to think that she was only there two or three weeks, or a much shorter period of time than I do. And I can tell you that that I I just don't think Dad remembers what happened. But I just remember it was cold and it was spring when we got Rebecca, and I remember it was the middle of summer that started getting very hot. I truly believe that she was with us about three months, and I know it was very shortly after that that. uh, that we got my sister, Amy.
1: Let's touch on this. When I first told you that I was gonna search for Rebecca, can you describe your reaction to that news?
3: I I felt that it was uh, digging up the, uh, an unpleasant uh, part of my past that I really, had completely forgotten about and didn't really want to uh, relive.
1: What changed your mind?
3: You. You wanted to go forward with it. It was okay.
1: Was it okay with him? Not initially. What did he do? How did he react? He just shut it down. He didn't want to talk about it. He says, I don't want you to do that. That's foolish. And he said to me, if, I just want you to know that if you decide to go ahead with this, there will be consequences and I will not have anything to do with you. Whoa. Yeah. And my brothers then stopped talking to me as well.
2: So why did you I mean, did you think about not doing it? Never. Why did you want to do it?
1: I feel like at that point I was pretty obsessed with finding out if she was okay. Like, I wanted to do it for my mom, mostly. About the same time I found the baptismal dress while I was going through my mom's things, I also found a bunch of her diaries. She had written, my mom had written about thinking of Rebecca, praying for her, for her having had a good life and good outcomes, and. A loving family and you know it's just something that she walked around with it was a burden that she carried and and this diary this diary entry was from 1993 and she was still thinking about Rebecca you know 31 years later and I wanted to answer that question like I wanted to know that she was okay
2: Amy had three clues when she began her search a tiny picture of baby Rebecca and a rough idea of the year, and the time of year, that Rebecca was born.
1: Well, a couple, of peop- a couple of people said that it was not long after. My husband and I went to the Cook was- County Law Library in downtown so- Chicago. Okay, so yeah, it might be 19 so it could possibly conceivably be 62, and I would definitely go there before i go 58. But it's likely it could be May if she was adopted in April. We went into this little room where they had several microfiche machines looking for a petition to adopt.
2: May of 62? How long did you guys spend in that library?
1: We spent seven hours in the library. And at 4.30, a half an hour before the library closed. Holy moly.
5: Wow. And we were almost out of here.
0: Jeez.
5: And, and we both saw it like at the same time. Crazy. That's funny that you just came over here.
1: My heart's beating so rapidly right now. <laughs>
0: when Snap Judgment returns, the stunning conclusion to finding Rebecca. If you missed even a moment, subscribe to the Snap Judgment Storytelling Podcast at snapjudgment.org. We'll be back in a moment. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Snap Judgment. Today, in collaboration with the New York Times, Snap Judgment traces the history of one little girl.
5: Holy moly. Whoa.
1: My heart's beating so rapidly right now.
5: <laughs>
1: so we don't know if that was so we don't know if that was her father's name or her mother's name though. This petition right here is yeah. that's the petition number. Yeah.
4: Right. Now we
1: have to figure out can we get a can we get our hands on the petition?
4: Right.
1: As
2: she gathered information, Amy worked with a woman she called the Adoption Whisperer, a kind of expert detective on all things adoption. Militia Mitchell. Together they narrowed down names and dates in Malicious' living room.
6: Smith, Angel A N G E L L E. It looks like I had a client named Angel Smith. There's probably a million named Angel Smith.
1: We then had five names to five five or six names to work with, and we started to Google each of those names and just trying to look for some online footprint of each of those people. Okay, when I left the hospital two days later, <laughs> I found a blog post. This is posted by Angel, in parentheses, Angel, like the heavenly angel, Kimberly Smith.
0: I've
6: been Angel all my life. I think there's no doubt we have the right person here. though.
2: In a very crazy coincidence, Militia, this adoption whisperer, realized she knew Angel Smith, the woman they had found. So normally it would be against protocol to just call this found adoptee out of the blue. But since Militia knew her... They picked up the phone.
6: Hello? Yeah, I'm looking for Angel Smith. Uh, I don't know if you remember me or if you're the Angel Smith I remember working with. I'm looking so up. my,
1: name's my biggest fear was that I would... F- well, my biggest fear was that I wouldn't find Rebecca, time, that I would search Angel, and you not follow, find her. Help
6: adoptees find their- Angel Angel I'm great, but you just are not gonna believe why I'm calling. It's gonna rock your
1: Closely world. behind that, my, my second biggest fear was that I would down? find her but she yeah. yes. wouldn't want to be found and that she would be no, okay. upset. With the news, ago, news that I, I was delivering. She
6: was a, I'm, I'm okay. still lost right now. I know you are. So let me start again. There okay. was a baby whose name was Monica Gordon and she was placed with a family in Chicago, Mr. and Mrs. Sandberg. A white family. Correct. Did you ever know about this? Are you freaking out?
1: Huh. Time. Yeah, yeah. I was pacing like okay. a, like a caged cat while <laughs> Melissa was talking to her.
6: I'm gonna pass you now to Amy Roost. Yeah, I'm gonna let her take over the phone now. Okay. Hi, Angel.
1: <laughs> Hi, Amy. How are you? Bless you. I'm shaking a little bit right now. How about you? Girl,
7: you know I am. I mean, I'm so excited right now. And I was in the 99 cent store waiting for my husband to come out of the doctor's office. And he's just browsing up and down the line. I left my whole basket, ran out of the store, and I'm now
1: sitting in my car. Oh, wow. Well. The, this is absolutely, are you sure it's me? We're, we're positive. So, Angel, let let me tell you a little bit of the story and um, fill in some, some of the, the information that
2: Melissa When you first got on the phone with her, like what did you tell her at first? Were you trying to
1: like ease into it? I did ease into, into it. it. So, my, <laughs> so my parents adopted you and they were told that your parents were both white and you were very light skinned and they didn't know until a couple of weeks Later when you continue to get darker, to right. they took you to a pediatrician and the pediatrician thought you might be biracial. And this is where the story It's good. Well <laughs> this is where this is where the story gets a little dicey, but I want before I tell you the rest of the story, what I want to tell you first is that in Deerfield in nineteen sixty two there was extreme racism, there was extreme racial tensions. Go yeah. Okay. Yeah. Absolutely. But but. Let it, me explain. In, let me just give you a hint so you don't have to worry. Okay. Uh, but, I was chosen by. And for it my was parents. immediately clear
2: that Angel had been adopted by a wonderful family.
1: My parents, um, my mother, very very much wanted to keep you. My dad felt that it would be unfair to his sons, my brothers, and um, to you. Everybody. To you. To raise you in an all-white community in 1962,
2: and Angelle was shockingly receptive to this news about herself.
1: <laughs> yeah, so I was, you know, naturally, I was very, I was very you're worried. Ah, you're my sister, exactly. At some point, yeah. she said, "You know, my head is just reeling, and I need to get off the phone. Can we talk later?" Then, and then we eventually made a plan to meet. Did you tell your dad? So I called my dad and he and I left a message on his his voicemail saying, you know, Angel's coming to town and she would love to meet you. Um, I hope that you'll be able to meet with us. Maybe we could have brunch together on Sunday. And a couple days went by. And then on Saturday he called and he said, "Okay, let's meet for brunch. I felt a mixture of tension and relief. And my dad's 89 and he's very fit, but he was looking very small. She went up to him and tapped him on the shoulder and held out her arms and gave him just a giant hug. uh... We were seated at our table. We ordered a round of mimosas and she began telling us about her life
7: have a blood right. I'd, I'd heard this,
3: right out of the hospital. Right.
7: Yeah, exactly. And so I heard the story, I knew yeah. that I was biracial and that um, that my family they had expected me to be white but well, I didn't know that they were talking you about You
2: talked it. about how at the beginning of, of your search you were, family, were wanting to see if she was okay. So this is a story that Do you feel like me, so you were a big deal. like trying to show your dad she look she's okay? she turned Her life turned out okay?
1: I mean, I did, I will say this. I did feel some responsibility for the meeting going well. I did, I remember taking some pride in little parts of her stories that I wanted to make sure she shared with my dad.
7: I was in private school,
1: and she had two, we had a summer home in Union Pier, Michigan, and a home in
7: Chicago, so she had two mortgages.
2: Angel hit the family lottery. After leaving the
7: Sandbergs, she was
2: adopted by Ruth and Harry Smith, a black couple. They lived in a middle-class black neighborhood. They owned a stationery store. They had a large network of loving friends and family.
1: And she shared with us about her childhood, how she had uh, been very close to her parents and grown up in this wonderful community where you know, she was thought of it as you know, a village. And
2: then when she was eight, her dad suddenly died. She left her small private school she and her mom moved to Los Angeles. They no longer had their village of supportive
1: friends. And then the the, the story um, took this very distressing turn because she began to explain how when she got to Los Angeles she got inter- introduced to cocaine and
7: I can't honestly say that I was running from anything or hiding from anything, I just liked the way cocaine
1: tasted. Really liked it and started doing more cocaine and and eventually, ended up um, becoming homeless and, and living on the streets. And she told us about her HIV diagnosis. So
7: I disappeared for ten years. No one heard from me. No one had a clue where I was. No one would ever believe that I was homeless.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was just uh, you know, kind of you know, a whiplash listening to her story from you know, very stable, loving childhood um, in a loving family exactly what my mom wished for um, to just making some some bad choices you know I, I just remember listening and just I could see my dad's face. It was a hard story to hear So the conversation came back around to the decision to return. Rebecca. White
7: child, which is how all of this happened, no, by, and I'm I so
3: was, grateful. Was, uh, I can't even so imagine growing up in
7: Deerfield yeah. the only black. Yeah, I mean, can can you, best you best. just imagine what her life yeah. would <laughs> like. I mean, have been like? You imagine it because, like, one, child
3: one and
1: the whole, I mean, the only oh, black, black child yeah, in the white, white community. community, and look at this hair. Hey, uh, the persecution,
3: and it would have been it would have been a problem in this city. probably. Not probably,
7: absolutely. I was very always have been very grateful for whoever you were. Now that I know who you are is wonderful. <laughs> you know, I always wanted to be able to say thank you. You know, it's because <laughs> you know, you never know how people are gonna perceive things. No. And I just wanted you to know that, you know, my parents were ever grateful. I am so grateful. Huh. And it passes on to Amy. I just love yeah. her. The fact that she had the kind of heart to find me, you know, to look for me is just uh, I it's, it's happy
5: vol- that. I'm
2: sure. There's something about this tape that's uncomfortable of this brunch,
1: can, mm-hmm. can you name it? Well, listening to the tape, you know, like I didn't feel that at, I didn't feel what I'm about to tell you at the brunch, but listening to the tape, the part that made me feel uncomfortable was, I think we were all trying to rationalize what happened my parents' decision, that it was for the best. And it may very well have been for the best, and I know Angel believes it was for the best, but I felt like there was an attempt to gloss over and make everybody sort of assuage everybody's guilt about what had taken place.
2: There's so much reassuring going on. Exactly. When you, until when you were going, when you knew you were going to meet Len Sandberg for that first time, did you have any hopes or any fears?
7: Oh, girl, no. I don't live on fear. I, I was so excited to be able to thank him and to what I thought would probably free him. Um, from any type of ignorance, shall I say. When, When I say ignorance, I mean him not knowing me, not knowing how I would respond, how I had, you know, ingested the whole... The whole incident, the whole experience, who I had become, you know what I'm saying? I could dispel all of those notions. He would finally get to see this is me, this is who I am. I'm really grateful from the bottom of my heart. I am so grateful.
2: And are you okay with va- like like that being on you to validate that for him? Did you feel like you had a responsibility to make him comfortable to, to reassure him that you're okay?
7: No, no. That wasn't my responsibility, but I knew that it would happen. You know, it it comes with a certain level of, excuse me, did I make the right choice? Yeah. And especially, you know, when, when you're checking your moral compass, you know what I'm saying? Because it was about race. You know, we can't pretend that it wasn't. It was about race. And what does that say about me as a human being? I can attest to, hey, it was all good. It was okay. You made the right choice, dude, and I'm the only one who could have validated that for him. You know, like I explained to him, I said, hey, look, it's like this. If I were to order a dress on the internet, and then they send me, instead of sending me a red dress because I have this gorgeous red bag and shoes, and they send me a little black dress, cute little black dress, but it doesn't go with my ensemble. So it's got to go back. It's got to go back. <laughs> and and when I, I shared that with him, he was like, what? And I said...
2: I mean, that is a crazy thing. To, that's a little... I'm like, what, too, Angel? Like, it's a little bit of a crazy thing to say. You were human.
7: Come on. Come on. Come on. And I'm still human, you know? And I am still human, and I, I do have a brain. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> come on. Seriously. You have a white family and a white community... Didn't nobody want a little black child to throw into this
2: mix? Did you ever, for a moment, not have that that like positive perspective on it? Was was it ever was learning this part of your story ever, I don't know, hard to swallow, or did it make you feel any kind of way?
7: Never, never, never. You know, I, I, was, I was adopted or chosen twice before I was one month old. You know, I could be, one oh, poor me. Nobody wanted me. No, it took the right people to deal with me. <laughs> you know. What do you think you would have done
2: had you been in the Sandbergs?
7: What kind of question is that? What would you have done if you had been at the Sandbergs? You know what I'm saying? Yeah, what would you have done? You know, who knows? Who knows?
3: I felt uh, 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 morally I was probably wrong. Uh, Maybe practically I was right, but morally I was wrong, I think. And I should have been uh, stronger, perhaps, and and gone forward with it. I didn't. And I felt guilty.
0: We'd like to thank Angel Smith, Amy Roost, the Sandbergs, Leonard and Stephen for inviting us on this journey with them. We wish you all peace and healing going forward. Big love to Nick Jackson and KPBS in San Diego. This story is produced in collaboration with the New York Times. The Original score was performed and created by Renzo Gorio with a link to Amy's website and the New York Times article on our website, snapjudgment.org. The story is produced by Amy Roost and Anna Sussman. Snap us. If you missed even a moment, you have to hear the entire thing. Subscribe to the podcast. However you get your podcast, get this one. Snapjudgment.org. Let the people know, I'm super proud of the team that made it happen The Uber producer, Mark Ristich, and I want to show some love to one of the finest radio producers the world has ever known, Anna Sussman. The Beatmaster, Pat Machidi miller Joe Rosenberg, reads backwards. Shana Sheely reads textbooks. Renzo Goriel reads manuals. Eliza Smith reads romance novels. Adiza Egan reads fortunes. Liz Mack reads maps. Renzo Goriel reads minds. Leon Morimoto reads the road. Taylor Cot reads the season, and Jasmine Aguilera reads the signs. Now, perhaps you've heard from random strangers on the street that this is not the news. No way is this the news. In fact, you track down one of those random strangers, threaten to beat the truth out of them, but in the end, they will still declare that even though you can't be further away from the news, than this is. This is W N. Why? See?